Welcome to the podcast 500 Years of Urban Farming in Denmark, Past Experiences and Future Prospects. The podcast is based upon the book bearing the same title, a book written by Dr. Paul Rue-Kledal, who is educated as an agricultural economist. He has more than 20 years of professional experience as a researcher and governmental advisor within urban farming, recirculating aquaculture and aquaponics. Urban farming has popular solutions to unpopular problems. Something has to be done and urban farming has a lot to contribute with solutions to this. This is very important that urban farming uh, becomes institutionalized. So it's not just uh, civil society projects, individual projects that pops up uh, here and there, but it, but it actually becomes part of a policy and a political change, a structural change. I think that's very important. Cities are already responsible for 70% of the uh, greenhouse gases in the world. Mm -hmm. So if you want to change, you want to do something about climate, you have to look towards the way we organize our lives, our work, our leisure in the cities. In this second episode, we'll talk about the future prospects of urban farming. You will hear about different types of urban farming, for instance, acrihoods, aquaponics, vertical forests and green rooftops. We'll take you up three stories to a green rooftop in Copenhagen called Østergro, where chickens and bees live side by side with flowers and vegetables. We'll also try to get an answer to the big question, how can urban farming provide solutions for the current climate crisis? And finally, Paul Kledale talks about the manifesto he has written, which is part of his book. A manifesto that should be read and acted upon by you, by me, politicians, city planners and architects. We learned in the first episode of this podcast that urban farming is not a new trend. It has roots way back in history. Please tell us briefly, what defines urban farming today? I think like 250 years ago, it's still a quest for the good life and uh, meaning it's to be part of a community and striving to balance uh, work and leisure and live in a safe and beautiful architectural surroundings. But of course, still also centered around uh, producing food and, and, and having an equitable or just uh, distribution of the food. But what is new, I think, in urban farming today is that it also has to encompass uh, the challenges with climate change and the environmental destruction. And, and urban farming is, is delivering a lot of answers and, and solutions to that also. And furthermore, what's also new, I think, is that now we are also moving towards being three quarter of the world population living in urban surroundings. And, and so we will see an expansion of, of, of diversity of urban farm examples uh, of how to claim space socially or physically. And, and, and this will grow and vary a lot. Yes, because more and more people are moving into cities and space is becoming 
less and less available. So do you think urban farming will help solve this problem with overcrowded cities? Yeah, that's where they have some answers also in the, in the density of using rooftops or having green uh, vertical sides or having vertical forests uh, within the cities. So, so you'll start having, uh, you're still trying to green the city because when you green the cities, you're also having evaporation from the plants, you're cooling the cities. And some studies show that you can have a, a, a fall of two degrees uh, in the cities if, if you cover it with, with greenery. And you again can take advantage of the heat uh, uh, from the buildings uh, for, for the growing plants. Or you can have the plants having the heat staying out, so you're cooling the buildings in the summer. Or you can isolate the buildings in the wintertime, uh, especially in the northern hemisphere. So there's many advantages of having uh, a vegetation in the city. And speaking of vegetation and today's urban farming, can you take us through the different types? Uh, I read in your book you talked about agrihoods. What are they? Agrihoods is a fusion of the words agriculture and neighborhood, uh, so it becomes an agrihood. And it's a newer phenomenon uh, that we've seen in the United States, a private initiative and uh, popping up in suburban areas where new residential areas are being developed. So where formerly you had a, a aspiration of a, su a suburban area should have a golf course, greenery, that was, that was nature and it gave a, a better price for your residential apartments, areas. But now there's a new generation that wants another kind of nature. So instead of sometimes taking away farms, because now you're, you're having this urban expansion, they're letting the farm stay there and the farm becomes part of that new urban residential area. And so the farm becomes one that delivers food or it's part of education for the people in the residential area or, or joining with schools or kindergartens so they can come and see real animals and how a chicken looks like or where the egg comes from, etc., etc. So this is, this is a new generation that wants this kind of, of, of living uh, and being part of it, this type of nature and close to food and food production. And Do you know how popular these agrihoods are? They are very popular in the United States. They're expanding pretty rapidly now in these res new residential planning areas there. And then we have aquahoods. What are they? Yeah, I, I saw this uh, new design phenomenon, so I took the words from the agri-hood and then I said, okay, we also have aqua-hoods, so it's aquaculture production, producing fish, and, and living in a neighborhood with a watery environment to, to, with you. So that becomes an aqua-hood. And of course, that opens up for a, a completely different expansion because 71% of the Earth's surface is, is water. So, you know, there's a great possibilities of, of having expansion there. Um, and there's a company, Oceanics, uh, who together with our international renowned Danish architect, Bjarke Ingels, have developed uh, these uh, hexagonal uh, platforms. And they are like two hectare each, 250 to 300 people can live on them. And uh, when you join these hexagonals, in six, then you have a village and they encompass a little lake in the center. And if you take these six of these villages, you then have a city of 10,000 people 
living underwater, so to speak. And they are supposed to produce food there and having a mix of uh, aquaponics. So they produce fish and vegetables together or having uh, seaweed or algae in, around these uh, hexagonals and, and producing food for the people living there. So you got to help me out here. How does soil and vegetable go with something that is on the water? Well, you don't need soil for vegetables, and that's what you have in these aquaponic systems. So the, the manure from the fish is floating in the water, and it becomes a nutrient for the plants to grow there. That's what we call hydroponics in, in horticulture. And how close to being built are these aquahoods? Well, they're still on the drawing paper, and, and there are some cities, I think, in Singapore who have some ideas of, of wanting to, to build those. But these are quite new, and I, I can see there are potential for that also coming up uh, with the threats of rising sea levels uh, to coastal cities, that here now you have a, a, uh, a city that floats with the water tides. Did you, I know you're totally unprepared for this question, so but I'll just ask you anyway. Did you by any chance see the film with Kevin Costner called Waterworld? Yes, yes, I saw that, yes. <laughs> When you speak about those, this I, I'm thinking of this film, minus all the disaster. shooting each other oh, okay. and, yeah, and yeah, disaster. Yeah. Yeah. But is, is this actually what this is all about? Well, you could say this is to avoid the disaster perhaps. <laughs> that you can actually live here on the water surface there. Interesting. An important part of urban farming today is green rooftops. I asked Paul Kledale to explain the significance of these green rooftops. You can have the green rooftops uh, and, and make use of the wasted solar energy, so to speak. And, and it's also very nice to be up there. It's very quiet when you, when you move upwards uh, in a city. And you can decide if you want it for leisure or if you want it for actually growing food, etc. There's always a, f a conflict of what are you going to use the space in the city for. But once you go up there on the top, you know, it's, it's actually a conflict-free zone. So that's where you have a potential for actually growing food right in the center of the city, so to speak. I would love to see uh, one of these uh, green rooftops where people are growing things in the city. Can you take me to a place? I can take you to one place, which we have here in Copenhagen called Østergro. Right. Let's go to Østergro. We'll do that. This is Denmark's first uh, rooftop farm. It's established in 2016, and the area is 600 square meters, and around 450 square meters with uh, raised beds, with lots of uh, uh, vegetables and flowers, and there's beehives, there's chickens, uh, there are, is a kitchen, and there's a greenhouse where they grow vegetables, but also for having parties and dinners, and you can have your wedding up here in the roof also. So they are making a business case of uh, having an event. So this is very much an event economy, this rooftop farm, uh, right here in the middle of Copenhagen. And what's very beautiful actually, it's on 
top of some of the fields, the original fields that was given to Copenhagen 500 years ago when at, it, at the Reformation. And it took the soil away from the church and gave it to the municipality of Copenhagen. And we are actually standing here on the brewer's field and some of the mayor's field. So history is connected again with this urban rooftop farm. This is only possible on this particular building because it used to be a car dealer. Yes, so the building is already uh, very built for having heavy weight. And, and that's the problem with many houses today. They're designed to, you know, just carry a, a light roof and, and some snow, etc. So it's it's very, very difficult to establish rooftop farm. But this one here was possible because of, yeah, it used to have a lot of cars. Let's walk a little bit. Um, tell me what you see. Well, now we're passing the kitchen, a beautiful smell of uh, salmon and things like that, because there's going to be a lunch later on for some people coming here. And right now there's some kindergartens, children here, and there's a, a pedagogue who makes uh, uh, events or explanations about nature and urban farming for, for these kindergarten children that's around here now. So they actually learn how things are growing and they don't think that it's, it's growing in out of the box in the supermarket. So exactly, and they see alive chickens and where they can uh, collect the eggs, etc. So this is very nice because it's also urban farming connecting to education and environmental consciousness. So yes, it's a very beautiful thing. So we see a lot of raised beds here. Uh, I, I think it's around 1,100 tons of soil that they carried up here on the roof. So, so that's a lot. So here we see a lot of beautiful raised beds of kale and garlic and uh, yeah, red kale, green kale, fennel, and then a lot of flowers further on for the beehives where they also collect the honey. They have just last week collected the first batch of honey and then they will collect again by the autumn when the bees are getting ready for winter and going to sleep. And now we're passing the greenhouse where they have the where people can sit and have their lunch or dinners or wedding parties, etc. That's all celebrated here. You can see they're growing also tomatoes along the wall. Yeah, the greenhouse is full of tomatoes. Yeah. And tables and chairs for people to sit right in, among the fruits and vegetables. Yeah. It's a very, very nice place. Let's go see the beehives and tell us what you see on the way. Yeah. Here we have salads and strawberries, love, love beautiful red strawberries coming along here. And then also some other flowers in between the, the vegetables, so that's to disturb insects or pests, so they don't attack the vegetables. And is everything organic up here? Yes, all is organic up here, yes, completely. So they use the chicken manure for, for fertilizing, etc. And they have a lot of green fertilizing. So there's a clover and other kinds of, uh, of uh, plants that collects the nitrogen from the air and, and leaves it in the soil once you uh, dig in the green. Yeah, and there you see the young children, kindergarten children. They're getting lunch now and uh, with a piece of bread with honey from the beehives. And I can see that these children are really enjoying themselves. Yes, yes. And some of them in small princess dresses, of course. 
<laughs> and uh, about five meters away, we have the beehives. Yes, there's like three beehives, yeah. And then you have in front of them, you can see a lot of flowers they have sown so the bees can be fed and, and collect the honey. Can you tell me, looking at this beautiful rooftop, how does that make you feel? That it's possible. You know, this is really possible, and I think it's it, it's what's needed for many people. You know, that it, if you see it, you know, it can be done other places. But the, the challenge is that many houses are not made for this. So it's very important that also architects and planners in the municipality, you know, see that what's needed. If you want more green in a city and use the roofs for that, you need to have it already planned when you uh, built the building because it's the foundation that has to carry all the weight in the end. Let's hope that architects do listen and city planners do listen to this podcast and take this into account. Yes, because it's also when you have greenery and they evaporate, you know, it cools the city also. Eh? So, you know, it's very important in these, you know, to make a more climate resilient cities that you think nature into this and urban farming is contributing to that. And last but not least, if it's very rainy, I guess it it sucks up the water. Yes, yes, and of course there is some uh, uh, rubber linen underneath uh, of all this, you know, so it doesn't go through the building, etc. But uh, there's a lot of soil here to collect the rain. That's that's when it falls. There are many advantages to having green rooftops in a city, as you can hear. They can collect the rain. They can cool off a city. They can bring people together, give peace of mind, educate youth, and not at least produce food. So why are there not many more of these green rooftops? As Paul Cleedale said, the challenge is that hardly any buildings are strong enough for carrying the weight of the soil on the rooftop. I'm interested to know how that can be solved in the future. So what does he think is holding architects back from planning green rooftops on new buildings they design? They are also hindered by these economic frames of we don't want that, we want it as cheap as possible a building and, and has as many residents we can rent it out to or something. So, so that's the challenge also, these economic constraints uh, for the architects on how to make the buildings and, and how do the investor get the money back if I have to make also room for leisure, etc. I guess it's the same, you know, why should a city make parks? I mean, they don't get any money out of a park, right? Uh, but you are attracting residents with high education, high income, who love to stay in the city, who like to innovate and, and, and create wealth in, in, in different ways. So, of course, it comes back in another way. So it's, it's this way of perspective of looking at things. And that's the perspective I would like to have also in, in how you design your city and the buildings. And urban farming is putting this forward, you know, that you have to think about the nature into, into the design of the architect and the design of the residential area and transportation. In this case, when you look at food, how, how do we get our food? Is it close or is it far away? Does it cost energy? Does it deliver a lot of carbon dioxide? So urban farming is forcing in the whole design of residential area, community, the municipality. How do we want to live? Yeah. And besides that, the people want 
green and they want food and they, they want to be happy in a city environment yes. uh, which this uh, green rooftop could give them. Yes, and I think this becomes even more clear because when you live in an urban setting and you live in urban life, you know, you, you become very... I guess very far away or alienated from nature. So, so when you when you suddenly become aware of these different crises and catastrophes, etc., you you suddenly become aware how vulnerable you actually are. And I think that's where this drive for for wanting uh, more urban farming in this city gives you a sense of security or I'm doing something good about these crises that are turning up around us. Please tell me about green walls and vertical forests. What what are they? Well, it's it's like a, a new dimension of of uh, making uh, greenery in the city, where normally you you, you have this two dimension. You're on the on the on the flat uh, ground for producing greenery, food, etc. But now you can suddenly grow vertically as well, and uh, and you also have the possibility of actually growing trees. Vertically, you know, that can be fruit trees or beautiful flowery trees, etc., giving a whole new dimension to landscape, landscape architects, and, and giving this potential for growing uh, or, or designing city developments uh, like hills or mountains, different sizes of the houses or buildings, etc. And so the, the city would melt together with the nature where it's actually placed very brutally with its concrete. I believe there are already uh, some architects in the world doing this. Yes. Uh, and actually, if I turn to page 132 in your lovely book, I see an Italian architect who has designed these vertical forests. It looks like two concrete buildings uh, upon which green trees and plants and flowers are growing and looks very beautiful. Mm. It's placed in Milano, in Italy. Have you seen them? Yes, yes. It's very beautiful. How did that make you feel? Uh, wonderful feeling. And also the, there's two uh, mountain climbers who also were trained in, in, in looking after plants who work there all year round and pruning and taking care of the trees or if, if Some plants are dead, they replace them, etc. So it's also kind of a, a complete new education for people in forestry or gardening, you know, that suddenly they have to be working on vertically. They cool the building in the summertime and in the wintertime they they uh, save the heating inside because it kind of isolates, you know, with all the greenery outside. And the, and the, it's very beautiful if you come in the autumn because then the, the leaves are changing colors to red and yellow. So, so the buildings are also changing with the season. It's very beautiful. And we'll put a link in the show notes to Mr. Stefano Boeri, who has designed these uh, vertical gardens. In the book, Paul Cleedale not only takes us through the history and the past importance of urban farming plus future prospects, he has actually written a manifesto, which we will talk about shortly. But first, I asked him why he has written this manifesto. 
I wanted to put forward uh, this claim that urban farming is, is really a counter-reaction to the many negative consequences of present urban development. Uh, but I, it's also a tale of inspiring local actions on how social and structural change is possible. And I also think on the grander scale, urban farming is also a statement uh, that cities as economic systems cannot continue to grow uh, uh, within an infinite environmental surrounding. So this obvious, this evident uh, thing about the world situation right now that's, that has to be put forward in a manifest. Something has to be done and urban farming has a lot to contribute with solutions to this. Who is the manifesto for? Well, I think it's it's on all different levels because it's on all different levels that that, that needs to take action here. And so it's it's on small uh, individuals or NGOs trying to promote uh, urban farming in, in in areas with social marginalized people, or it's uh, in the urban planners uh, to put it into design because I think this is very important that that urban farming uh, becomes institutionalized. So it's not just uh, civil society projects, individual projects that pops up uh, here and there, but, that, but it actually becomes part of a policy and a political change, a structural change. I think that's very important. So of course it's uh, addressing politicians and, and, and uh, urban planners, architects. So it's also these companies that are involved with these things. Uh, But, but politicians don't change without the a political pressure from people or individuals or organizations. So. And let's elaborate a little bit more into these uh, types of readers of your manifesto. What will the realization of it require from, for instance, individuals? I think they have to see examples. They have to experience examples and see how urban farming would, would actually contribute with changes to their lives, of a better balanced life, or, and, and, and they show solutions of, uh, of environmental solutions to climate change or environmental degradation, or that you can actually bring food and very close production, and you can have a community working around food production or making events, etc. And I think that's also where I want to show that urban farming can, it's, it's more than just producing or consuming food, but that can also be something that protects uh, architectural buildings or uh, certain residential areas, or it becomes part of tourism, or it becomes part of event making, etc. So urban farming has a lot to contribute in the city living than just, you know, eating food. And what will it require from our politicians? Well, a pressure, of course, or to see that you can actually uh, do good for people. And so when you go for election next time, if you propose things like this, you might become very popular because urban farming has popular solutions to unpopular problems. And finally, what will the realization of this manifesto require from schools and education? Should they should this be put on uh, on the regular scheme in in schools? 
Yeah, I would love to see more of this. So you have urban farming either on the schools or urban farming is connecting to schools. As I also said about agri-hoods, that they were working together with the educational system from, from primary school to kindergarten, etc. So so it becomes part of the education of, of environment and you understand this uh, connection with the water of the rain and it has to be clean uh, when it goes through the air so you can eat clean food, etc. So this manifesto will actually produce a lot of good the more people that read it and hear about it. That's the modest hope, yes. What is your vision with the manifesto? Well, as written in the book, I hope that urban farming will have a significant environmental, social and economic impact and supporting cities on on their path to a sustainable alignment with the overall environment. You know, this this uh, perception that cities are really an economic system and it the more it grows and expands, you know, you're taking resources from this finite environment or the world we're living in and in the same time putting a lot of waste outside into it, it cannot last, you know. And cities are already responsible for 70% of the uh, greenhouse gases in the world. Mm-hmm. So if you want to change, you want to do something about climate, you have to look towards the way we organize our lives, our work, our leisure in the cities, the whole transportation, etc. And I think more in the vision there, it, uh, urban farming should be has to be deeply embedded in the urban planning, as, as we have been talking about, and the whole architectural design and the environmental education and, and be part of a just food system. That That's my vision also of urban farming. Then let's speak about your mission. What is your mission with the manifesto? The mission is that all major cities shall have an urban farm policy incorporated in the municipal plan. And so supporting cross-cutting themes of residential planning, architectural design, transportation choices, nature protection and space for leisure activities. If you center this around food, It will have a huge impact on how do you design the residential area? Uh, What kind of architectural design? I mean, are we talking about do we have rooftops or how much green space do we have between the housing and for what? Uh, what kind of community do we want and, 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 or have opportunities for in an area? Uh, and again, the transportation choices will also have an impact on if we think food and food uh, transportation into that, etc. Or we want to lower the carbon dioxide uh, from transportation. And again, you want the environment into the city and nature protection. How can urban farming be part of that? And again, urban farming is more than just producing and consuming food. It's, it can also be part of tourist activities, it can be part of event making, it can be part of uh, architectural protection. So it, it can it can lift many other perspectives of a urban development. Please run us through the overall goals with this manifesto. Yeah, one of them I think is, is very important to put forward is that wherever cities occupy land for housing and infrastructure, the concrete footprint has to be compensated by at least the same ecological footprint. 
of green space. So when you construct new buildings, you have urban sprawl, you have to replace it by greening somehow. So that can be a green rooftop, or you can even quadruple it by having greens on the vertical sides or vertical forests, etc. So what I want here is that suddenly nature has a cost when you plan, when you design urban uh, expansion. You cannot just do it. You have to, because you have to rethink the way you do it, because nature becomes a cost. That's a very powerful statement I would like to have in, uh, that's a political statement, a political regulation that I would like to have in, in future city development. You cannot just do it without replacing the concrete with ecological footprint. And you've written this book, you've written your manifesto, we're doing this podcast. How else are you going to get there? Well, I hope that, that uh, all kinds of people are working there because, I mean, this is also international organizations that are working with uh, urban farming or taking it very serious. It's United Nations, the FAO Food and Agriculture Organization. There's also this group of cities called C40, which has 75 of the very important mega cities in the world. Together they are responsible for a quarter of the gross domestic product in the world. So, so there's a lot of initiatives also on the city level and city mayors uh, who are actually very important actors in, 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 in potentially promoting urban farming. And they're standing there with the, with the direct consequences of a, a global food crisis or, or a global pandemic, etc. It's the cities that suddenly with millions of people, they have to find out how do we secure food uh, security. And so it's there, but it, it, it's on all different levels that people have to push forward to this and understanding this, you know, that there's, the environment is answering, replying us back to our growing economic system. We are eating more and more into this finite uh, ecosystem. And, and in the book, I also provide examples of policies that could be chosen and, and, and different internationally recognized planning tools are also part of the book and on how cities can actually you know, support a path towards uh, incorporating uh, urban farming in, in the overall urban development. If obtaining the vision in your manifesto is 100 on a scale from zero to 100, where do you think we are right now? I think we're just at five. Oh my goodness, that was not a lot. I was no. actually expecting you to say a higher number there. No, but it's, it's slowly being recognized. Uh, and also the pandemic, the corona, COVID-19 pandemic uh, has also shaken up in, in, in different uh, municipalities and understanding because suddenly, you know, the food shops were closed and, and a lot of food markets, open markets were closed. So there was a lot of people, also older elderly people who suddenly couldn't get food 
but we we saw a lot of these uh, urban farm box schemes, sending food, and and NGOs could actually deliver, you know, to the doors of, of elderly people or handicapped people, etc. So so there was a, already there again when we have a crisis that, and that there's an awareness how dependent we suddenly are on this nature, which we don't feel in the city in the concrete center. We don't feel this dependency on the nature. But um, we need some more crisis, unfortunately, to have this push uh, so it becomes embedded and institutionalized, you know, in, in the municipality planning, that food production is, is, is a human right and it, and it should be uh, feasible and close to where we live, etc. And not so uh, depending on large distance transportation only and this huge centralized food system that we are very dependent on today. What overall part do you think that urban farming will play globally in the future? I, I, I do believe it, it will have a more and more important impact and influence on politicians and urban planners because, uh, I mean, with, with this rapid urban growth, uh, we will have more and more cities of, of cities with one to five million uh, people and we'll have more of these mega cities of 10 million plus. So all these questions of how do we support nature, how do we support greenery in the areas, how do we support a, a, a food security and, and, and with steady supply to, to more than 30 million people like in, in, uh, in Tokyo or Mexico City, etc. So these are huge challenges and also living a life with, uh, with pollution or noise from traffic, etc. So all urban farming is, is is a very important part of this, you know, how to how to make the good life in the urban area. Do you think urban farming can save us from the climate crisis? It has solutions to diminish it because it forces us to think, rethink the way we live on the basics from from producing food and consuming it, but also what kind of life do we want in the cities and the cities are responsible for this climate crisis. So uh, It, it's part of this, something has to change in the way we construct our lives in the urban area. And finally, what is your own personal hope for the future when it comes to urban farming? What visions do you see? I, in my visions, I see this, that this, The cities are covered in green and, and they look like how I imagine the hanging gardens of Babylon once looked like. So the future must be green. The future of the cities are they green and they are much more aligned with the overall ecosystem. Yeah. Paul Kledel, thank you so much for sharing your book about urban farming and sharing your thoughts and your manifesto for the future. Thank you for taking part of it. You've listened to the second part of the podcast 500 Years of Urban Farming in Denmark Past Experiences and Future Prospects based upon the book bearing the same title written by Dr. Paul Ry Kledal If you would like to read more or maybe buy the book please visit paulrykledal.dk. Interviewer and producer of this podcast is Annette Hallstrøm from Halcom. <laughs>